Uh, good morning. This morning we have um, on our agenda the canonicity of Scripture. It's really important that we understand how the Word came together, why we trust it, the things that were put in and the things that were left out. Um, and, and the reason we do this first before we study systematic theology is because the Bible, the written Word of God, handed down to us will be our authority. So think about uh, going to med school and uh, you're going to go into kinesiology or you're going to go into nephrology uh, and you're, you're like, okay, our textbook, who wrote this textbook? Um, are, are they current? Um, it's not just like buying toothpaste that was recommended by 9 out of 10 doctors. It's um, your very life. And so if we are to put the Word of God above our own feelings, current thoughts, and trends, um, it's important for us to know it's not just a blind leap of faith. It's not just this seems to work, um, but this is the Word of God. And we lay our lives before it. It is the filter. It's the glasses we put on when we consider decisions uh, purposes in life and where we're going. So um, it, this is going to be a, a kind of a rough overview. If there's any particular area that you think, I really would like to dive deeper into this or into that, um, then I've got all sorts of resources for you. Um, but here's how I treat it. There are certain issues in theology and in life that I may take a season and dive into it deeper. Um, for instance, take creation. In, in the PCA and in our statements of faith, uh, we believe God created the heavens and the earth in the space of six days, and it was all very good. Now, the interpretation by different ministers in that six day, was it six literal days, was it... 24-hour days were those days as periods of time. Uh, tons and tons of documents out there. Uh, they, they go and look at just the word day, yom in Hebrew, and um, you know, in, in the, the day of the Lord, that, that kind of stuff. So there's, there's lots of different views of even taking those words and saying, I believe those words. Um, so maybe 10, 15 years ago, that was my study for the year reading all the stuff on all the different sides. And I came to a conclusion. Here is where I stand. Here is where I take this. Um, this is what I believe concerning creation. And I say it's kind of like... Um, and anyway, I settled it. I may not be able to sit down with you after church and recount all those things, but it's settled in my mind. And so when I present the canonicity of Scripture, when we talk about textual criticism, um, it may not be something that even comes up in your conversations, but I do believe it has to be settled in your mind as a Christian. Where will my final authority rest? Will it rest in what the pastor says? Um, will it rest in uh, the, 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 can the creeds and confessions of the ancient church? Uh, or will it rest in the Word of God? And how can I trust that what I'm holding in my hands, what I'm reading, is uh, the Word of God? So 
that's that's why it's important um, and that's why we're going to delve into it and kind of brush over some of the some of the concepts and some of the issues so let me pray for us first father we thank you for your word we thank you father for those who have gone before us father even those who have lost their lives defending the holy inerrant infallible inspired word of god we thank you for those who have put in diligent work uh, to translate the scriptures that we might have a very reliable witness as we hold our bibles in our hands and we thank you holy spirit for applying the word to our hearts and our minds inscribing to us that truth and we pray, Lord, that we would trust it, and in so doing, trust you. Help us to not just understand, but be convicted and convinced that the Word of God is true, though every other person may be a liar. And so help us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to read just... Uh, I've got a whole bunch of verses in there. Some of them I printed out in your notes. Some of them I haven't. 2 Timothy 1.13. When you think about the pastoral epistles, Paul is writing to Timothy and to Titus, and basically he is saying, this is how we're going to do church. When we plant churches, don't leave until there are elders in place. And, and this, is what, this is how we plant churches. But then he writes in verse 13 of chapter 1, Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. We have in the New Testament this sense that there are sound words, that there is a system of sound doctrine, that the reason the apostles don't just do a big revival meeting and then leave and go to the next city is they want to make sure that the body of believers, those who have received Christ as Savior, have the proper sound teaching. Because all throughout Scripture, there's warnings that, that false teachers are going to follow. And we see that in the New Testament. They plant churches and the Judaizers come and follow. Or we see it in church history. Uh, the Gnostics and the Ebonites, they, they, they follow the spread of the gospel. And so the necessity of sound doctrine is vital for the church. Um, it's funny, I had two questions from last week. One was from Jason Sheffield, and the other was from Travis Bacon. I don't see too good, but you see a Sheffield laying around here? I don't see any Bacons. So uh, I'll save those questions for next week. But there are two questions were, just so you know. Last week when I talked about the Scriptures being to us a better witness than an audible voice from God, um, We'll dive into that maybe next week or the week after. And the other uh, was uh, asking about the, the languages that the original autographs were written in. But um, since they're not here, we'll save that for next week. Actually, next week we're going to do a lesson on the, the resurrection. So, all right, in your notes, what do we mean by the canon of Scripture? The word canon is used as a measure or a standard. What measures up? What should be included? What books of the Bible should be included? Uh, and in that, if you've ever looked at a Roman Catholic Bible, 
there's books of the Apocrypha that are in it. And so uh, that was a big deal in St. Louis where we had a, a lot of people that were raised Catholic and they'd come with their Bible and like, Why don't, where, where's this book? Um, what belongs in there and what doesn't belong in there? <coughs> we call that the canon. Um, why is it important? Well, in Deuteronomy, Moses finished speaking all these words. He said to them, take to heart, take to heart, not just memory, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today. I'm warning you. God's word stands to us as a warning that you may command them to your children. And they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you but your very life. Deuteronomy 32, 45 to 47. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. We are not free to add or subtract from God's word. Deuteronomy 4, 2. You shall not add to the word nor take from it. You're to remember to keep the commandments that the Lord I, your God command you. Remember what I did to you at the bowel of Peor, right? He said, I've given you this, and I've given you this record. Here's what happened. Do you remember what happened um, when Israel mixed with the Midianites? Do you remember that? It's written for you. Read it, follow it, study it. I'm the same God who did those things to those. So um, we're not to add, because if we do, we require extra things that God did not command. So in our book of church order, one of the preliminary principles is that the church does not have the right or the power to add, to bind the conscience of its members above and beyond the words of Scripture. If we subtract, like the Jefferson Bible, let's take out all the miracles of Jesus, right? If we subtract, we take away from important instructions for life and for worship. Um, I think in your notes I have Isaiah 40. I've put that in there a couple times. Um, just I just left it in there because, you know, I say that after every sermon or after every scripture reading for my sermon. And part of it is I just want your kids to memorize it. I want your kids that come to worship here to know. What did Pastor Mark always say? Grass withers and the flower fades. Yeah, yeah, son. Yeah, daughter. That wasn't Pastor Mark who said that. Uh, that's God's word that said it. He was reciting it. Um, as a reminder, as we read and hold our lives before His Word. The early Christians had a symbol, a fish. You ever seen those fishes? And they wear them on their necklace now, right? If you're like a hip, most, probably most of the Acts 29 pastors, uh, they're hip and they probably have tattoos and they'll have one on their ankle or their bicep of a fish, right? I, sorry, I'm not going to be that hip. Um, but I may wear hey dudes now and then, um, but I'm not going to be that hip. What does the fish mean? You know what the fish means? Probably you do. Those fish has a, it had those five letters. But think about that. The fish was an early Christian creed. You put it on your door. It was a symbol. What do we believe? What does a Christian hold to? And those five letters, those five Greek letters were a basic creed. Here is what we believe. Uh, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Um, and that spelled the word fish, ichthus, as you see it. Um, so what they believed is important. Our whole authority arrives at it. 
uh, our elders and deacons and um, anybody who is licensed to preach in the Presbyterian Church in America, they, they have this, um, uh, this vow. Do you believe the Scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant Word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? All right, so I put some basic principles of canonicity on the board here. These three actually work in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. The first is authorship. Who wrote these books? So throughout Scripture, uh, we have read, uh, even in our text, that God instructs Jeremiah and Isaiah and Moses and Joshua, write these things down. But he also instructs them to write his word down. The people will be held accountable as you teach my word. So authorship and apostolicity. Apostolicity. Yeah. Who, who wrote it? So uh, the ancients, the early church fathers, that was as, as they are considering this book should be added or that book shouldn't be added. You can read through some of the historical arguments that happen with different books. Uh, if you ever study Martin Luther, you know that he, he didn't want James in the New Testament. He called it a straw epistle. And one of the reasons he didn't want James in there is because of his overwhelming sense of the grace of God. And so this idea of grace and works, um, it, wasn't all, it wasn't this, it was this. Is it orthodox? Is this book that we're going to put in the canon of Scripture, Second John, Third John, are they orthodox? Are they, does it line up with the rest of the teachings of Scripture? Really important, especially in New Testament canonicity. Books were being written. Gospels were being presented. Um, I don't know if I have in your notes or not a sample from the Gospel of Thomas, uh, a spurious text. Um, but it demonstrates one of the reasons the Gospel of Thomas is not in our New Testament. Um, the third is the universality. Uh, was it used not just by one little group, not just by the church in Galatia, but, but was it accepted, and especially as we do textual criticism, we find texts of different places, uh, which we'll get into in a minute with the ideas of textual criticism, but um, was, was it widely used? Um, was it a part of what some people consider this core canon of books uh, that were to be protected at all costs? Anybody see the Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor movie, um, the Frisco Kid. <laughs> I mean, it's an old one. That, that's a reach, Scotty. You've seen it. It's Harrison Ford. It is. With Gene Wilder as the, as the rabbi. Yeah, yeah. Gene Wilder, the rabbi. Uh, anyway, he's driving across the West, and he is bringing this the the Torah, you know. And uh, as a kid watching it, I'm like, um, yeah, it wasn't Richard Pryor. <laughs> uh, He's carrying it across, and he is protecting it with his very life. All right? It's a comedy, but, but it was interesting to me. It's the first time I encountered it as a kid. I'm watching that. I'm like, Dad, what's the Torah? And what is this guy? And he's like, I've got to take this, this Torah, this word. I protect it with my very life. And I've mentioned to you that before, that the ark was protected. The word was protected. The scrolls were protected. They were given a holy place a special place. They knew they weren't just letters. It wasn't just historical documents, but it was the Word of God. 
given to them. So those three things are probably the most important as we think about how that Word of God was put into what we have today. Um, so I've broken your notes down into two sections, the Old Testament canon. Um, and we have examples of the, this in, first of all, I put in there the Ten Commandments. Okay, that's the first thing we have really recorded, that God wrote that with his finger, um, the finger of God written in stone tablets, front and back, and there was no extra room. What is our God doing? He's demonstrating it also the very importance of the Ten Commandments. Uh, it is extremely, it's not to be altered, it's not to be lost. Even when Moses throws it down and breaks it in his anger, God gives him another one, uh, redoes it, filled from front and back, because Moses, you are not going to add to this. Nothing's going to be taken away, nothing's going to be added. It's where we get our term, right, written in stone. Um, it's deposited in the ark. It travels with them. I put some text in there for you to look up if you want. Moses then wrote additional words. We read about that in Deuteronomy 31. Um, the media context was um, Deuteronomy. Right? They're getting ready to go and cross over into the land. And in Exodus 17 and 24 and 34 and Numbers 33 and, and also in Deuteronomy 31, we read over and over that Moses was given the text to write. Pretty much across the board until the 60s, maybe early 50s, um, it was understood that the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. We'll get into textual criticism and the um, uh, redactors and documentary hypotheses and all of that in, in just a minute, but um, that was really the, the, the first canon, these books. Joshua 24. Joshua then picks up after Moses. Um, and he writes these words in the book, Joshua 24, 26. He writes these words in the book of the law. He took large stone and he set up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Um, and, and think about this. Joshua did this in light of Moses' warnings. Joshua, uh, it is assumed that he had commands from God. Um, God tells him, in Joshua 1.5, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, for just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Following Joshua, you have the prophets with the kings. Um, 1 Samuel 10.25, um, he wrote them in a book. 1 Chronicles, the Acts of King David, they're written by Samuel the seer and the prophets. 2 Chronicles, uh, the rest of the words of Uzziah from first to last, are written by the prophet. Uh, Jeremiah 30, the word came to me, uh, write in a book all the words I've spoken to you. Then you have the exile and the post-exile, 700 to 435 B.C., the different prophets in there. I noticed a typo. We don't have Esther's bra. Is that what it says in yours? <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Somehow my spell check went from Ezra to bra. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I saw that this morning, I'm like, great, good one, Pastor. Good one, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the, the, the prophets, um, written and shared and holding the people to it. The prophets, um, I was reading Ezekiel this week. Uh, Ezekiel lays in great detail. Here's what's going to happen to the country, the region, the land of Tyre. 
it happens. And, and so, again, part of that, we've talked about this before, is that God would give those prophets short-term predictions so that they could believe all that the prophets said. Uh, Babylon's going to come in. They're going to wipe all this off. I mean, just think about the, the, the prophet at the fall of Samaria, right? Tomorrow, uh, 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 the food, the bread's going to be as plentiful. Remember that? It's like, no, there's no way it's going to happen. Uh, and so all throughout the scripture, you have these accounts when Saul is anointed king. Saul, you're going to meet this person. They're going to tell you that the donkeys are found. Um, and they're not worried about the donkeys anymore. They're worried about you. That happens. All throughout the scriptures, that is done so that the people of God know these prophets are speaking the word of God. Uh, the sixth point under the Old Testament is the intertestamental literature. Uh, the, some of the apocryphal writings fall in there. Um, in 1 Maccabees chapter 4, it says, Though a thorough history was recorded, there was no proof of prophetic procession. So uh, the Protestants and, and the early church fathers didn't accept some of those books, and that was the reason. There was no um, prophetic procession. We weren't sure that what was written there carried the authority of God's appointed prophets. Um, we'll skip Josephus, the Qumran community, the Essenes, um, in their Dead Sea Scroll writings, they were awaiting a prophet, it says, with the authority to continue the word. So when we find those Dead Sea Scrolls, it helps a lot as far as our textual criticism and, and the completeness of the word. But um, it also um, buttresses this idea that, that during that season, there was, uh, there was no really prophetic witness uh, written down. Um, and then seventh in your points there, of all the things Jesus argued about with the scribes and the Pharisees, think about it, there was no sacred cow that he did not cut the throat of, but Jesus never argued with them over the inspiration and the authority of the Old Testament canon. He never said, well, you know, we don't, we don't believe that anymore, or God's different, or that wasn't, doesn't carry authority with it. In fact, you find Jesus saying, I've got to follow it. Uh, I am here to fulfill it. What does he say? Not a dot will disappear from the law. So Jesus himself um, held to it. Matthew especially when he writes, but all the uh, Gospels, but Matthew especially when he writes, says, uh, Jesus is fulfilling this, he's fulfilling this, he's fulfilling this. Uh, they believed it to be the word of God. Um, so there's... There's four reasons that, that things aren't included. Um, some of that apocryphal literature, intertestamental literature, all these other Gospels. Uh, and I think I've listed that in your notes. They don't claim for themselves the same kind of authority. So many of those writings don't claim that type of authority. Two, they weren't regarded by such, uh, uh, by the Jewish people uh, from whom the letters and Gospels and stories originated. Third, they weren't considered scripture by Jesus nor the New Testament authors. And fourth, they contained teachings inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. Um, in short, we really should have no worries that anything needed has been left out. Um, 
or that anything that is in God's word uh, has not been included. When we come to the New Testament, I want to remind you that the writings of Scripture primarily occur, if you look through human history, the writings of Scripture primarily occur in connection with God's great acts in redemptive history. And so it, it makes sense. There is this season of about 400 years of silence between Malachi and the Gospel of Matthew. It, it is, it is uh, coinciding God's greatest redemptive act. Uh, but think about it in reference to creation and the exodus and the kings and the exile and the rescue and the, um, you know, the wilderness wanderings and the conquest. Um, in all of these, God's redemptive history we have the scriptures. Um, so the New Testament makes sense as the next and greatest event in the history of redemption has occurred. Um, and, you know, make jokes about that. We don't give someone a New Testament and say, here's a third of the Bible. You know, enjoy this. It's a third of the Bible. This, this is all you need, this third of the Bible. Um, it, it, it is one canon. It is the, the holy inspired word of God. Um, And the apostles stand almost then as uniquely qualified to write down the words and the deeds and to interpret them rightly. Uh, Their authorship, uh, they claim it internally, and um, they expect the people to follow it and to believe it. And they are given prophetic powers in that season. Right? Paul uh, and Peter... Um, they, they, they're given these prophetic type powers. They speak things um, that happen. Um, and it is such that, remember Paul on the island of Malta, um, he gets bitten by a snake and he just shakes it off in the fire and all of a sudden everybody thinks he's a god and they want to sacrifice to him and he's like, no, 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 don't do it. And then he explains the gospel to them and they want to kill him. <laughs> So it's like we want miracle workers. We just don't want to repent of our sins and entrust our lives to Christ. Um, so the apostles stand really as qualified to write the word down. I put in a quote in your notes from Wayne Grudem. It says, For a book to belong in the canon, it's absolutely necessary the book have divine authorship. The words of the book are God's words through human authors. And if the early church under the direction of the apostles preserve the book as part of Scripture, then the books belong in the canon. But if the words of the book are not God's words, it doesn't belong in the canon. The question of authorship by an apostle is important because it's primarily the apostles to whom Christ gave the ability to write words with absolute divine authority. If a writing can be shown to be by an apostle, then its absolute divine authority is automatically established. Thus the early church automatically accepted as part of the canon the written teachers, teachings of the apostles, which the apostles wanted preserved in scripture in john 14 jesus says i've spoken these things to you but the helper the spirit holy spirit the father will send he will teach you things and bring to your remembrance all that i've said to you uh, and you, you see that you see that in the gospels all of a sudden the, the, they remember the teachings of christ the things he said why because the holy spirit helps them remember but also, it all starts to make sense. It all falls into place. Um, John 16, I've said many things to you. You can't bear all of them now. The Spirit of truth will come and He will guide you. He won't speak on His authority. Whatever He hears, He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. 
1 Corinthians 14. If anyone thinks he's a prophet, spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. Just as an aside, I think that's why it was necessary for them to suffer. On human terms, it was necessary for the apostles to suffer. Um, and as horrible as it is, we know suffering and torture drives people to the truth, um, may make them say things, and, and for them to endure that truth. Um, all right, I've gone two minutes over time. Let me just give you just a brief on textual criticism, and maybe we'll pick up on this later. Yeah, you know what? We'll pick up on textual criticism later. Textual criticism really is um, the science behind getting what we would call the original autographs of Scripture um, into... Um, it, it, it deals with a Byzantinium text and, a, and uh, something from Quran and uh, the variances between this copy uh, that we have of the Gospel, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, and this one, Paul's letter to the Romans, and the differences between those two. How do we decide? Um, so we'll either talk about that or I'll just give you some notes on it if you want. Um, if it is something that's important to you, uh, this short book from um, David Black, who was one of the editors of, there's two Greek New Testaments that scholars use. Uh, Black is the editor of one of those. Um, but it's really good. It just kind of explains. Um, so sometimes when you're reading your Bible and you'll see a little footnote and it says some manuscripts, some MSS read, and then they'll give you a variant reading. Or you get to Mark, the end of the Gospel of Mark, and it says uh, verses 9 to 14 are not in the earliest and most reliable. And it's, and it's quoted off. Um, textual criticism is how we arrive at that. So let me pray for us and give you a break. Father, thanks for your word. <sighs> Lord, may we trust it. Um, thank you for protecting it. Um, thank you for its beauty, its fullness, its completeness. Um, prepare us now for worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you ask questions, I'll answer next week. Only if you're here. <laughs> <laughs>